in today's time herbalism has such a bad reputation and there's an increasing skepticism and distrust among people because of the fact that it's not regulated by the government so it falls in the gray zone but also i feel that plant medicine has been our biggest allies since the beginning of time in reality plant medicine represents a complex spectrum of healing from the totally innocuous to the potential lethal therefore our relationship with the plant kingdom is so intertwined because we all are a part of mother nature so how can we think in isolation and i totally agree when you scroll through your facebook post and find yourself reading about herbal cures by so and so doctor it really defames the name of herbalism but also creates obstacles for us as herbalist who genuinely want to and can also help people with the acquired knowledge through years of education and practice today i will be unfolding a little bit about the history and herbal wisdom which formed the basis of western herbalism creating a revolution in the history of medicine in europe and america what will be discovered in this section of the podcast is about the various prominent figures their ideology regarding health and tools they used to help humanity with and how these foundational philosophies um and ideas become the basis of herbalism that we herbalists follow today in our practice thus keeping their work alive as well as adding our own intellectual input and supporting guiding and bringing a reformation in the lives that we touch Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode. Today Joey has something interesting in store for us including me because I don't know what she's going to talk about today apart from the fact that it's something related to uh the history of herbalism and the way she's going to break down the misbeliefs that exist in our society today when it comes to herbalism. So yeah Joey let's get started. Let's begin ancient medical texts ranging from mesopotamia sumeria and egypt which actually predates those of greece in fact the babylonian tablets had records of a large range of symptoms of diseases in 1700 bce so which relates to the diagnosis and outcomes of specific conditions now because babylonians were experts at astronomical forecasting and the casting of the horoscopes through examination of animal livers disease was also frequently attributed to the action of gods spirits or demons but the egyptians they were the specialists in organ systems and diseases they were skilled diagnosticians and surgeons weren't egyptians the ones who completely mapped out the brain possibly i think possibly because the method that they used 
was um touching seeing and smelling the person taking oh. the pulse gave the physician an insight into the workings of the body whose pathological changes were frequently ascribed to the putrefying residues collected within it for example toxin or ama inside the body as we might call are you are you talking about urine mm, i think everything like toxin any kind of toxin mm. and um we have to remove that through the eliminatory canals of the body right yeah so when you say smell are you going to talk how they used to test with the sense of smell that even i am not uh, aware of okay but uh, yeah i mean at the end of the day they um used this method like they used to find where the ama is where the um toxicity is in the body and how can we remove that so that is something very insightful i found yeah wow and a key note for herbalist like we to assess a person a client in the same way by taking taking the person's pulse facial and tongue diagnostics yeah but you all definitely don't smell the person yeah <laughs> touch i think it's by touching pulse yeah. by taking the pulse yeah, yeah. yeah. okay pulse. but at least you all don't smell the person mm. but i do know one thing that i did read somewhere that the egyptians used to taste the urine in order to detect diabetes wow okay yeah. and if it's sweet yeah then exactly. yeah okay that's interesting right we have to more uh, dive deep into that yeah 100% but uh, there are several theories of interlinking cultures of ancient egypt with that of greece uh yeah. with greek mythology it all started with the centaur chiron who actually started medicine and handed over his wisdom to apollo achilles jason and asclepius Chiron was also called a wounded warrior and he sustained a wound by Heracles shaft and wherever there is wound i feel like what just comes to my mind is the herb yarrow because of its name achillea millefolium which is a botanical name and it's also called soldier's wound bot so you get the drift here right i mean because even he was a wounded warrior so we can actually use this herb So it sort of come from him. So the Latin name is actually derived from him. Yeah. His name. Yeah. So that's so the Latin names actually, of herb. I think the Latin name has been also derived from Achilles, uh, because it's called Achillea millefolium. But uh, I also think Chiron, he himself was also a wounded warrior, just like Achilles. Hmm. So this herb has come from them, and. they are still fighting even though being wounded at the same time so that's the courage i see in such uh, personalities yeah then we move on to um, the greek physicians who laid the foundation for a system of medicine that names explains and reveals patterns in nature the human body and its conditions of course we know the story of the great greek warrior achilles even he was a wounded warrior as i mentioned before because of a weakness in his ankle and he was also trained by chiron achilles tendon that's where it comes from yeah 
and then we have apollo the god of music and art he also practiced medicine for greater humanity and his descendant asclepius was also trained by chiron and was worshiped by 100 bce until the christianity 400 ce and after his death his temple of course was assumed as a place of healing for the ill and diseased who assumed healing through their dreams either in the form of asclepius hand or uh, in the form of instructions in their dreams that were later unfolded by the priest and then they had to be fulfilled by the physicians okay the one thing about dreams mm-hmm. uh since i am studying hypnotherapy they do go into dream analysis there are also some people who have delved into this and have devoted their careers into studying the significance of dream in our current life and also on our health so don't think that this is woo woo uh in some episodes in the future once we study about more about uh dreams and the and their significance in depth then we'll be discussing this and trying to address this in a more scientific way which i'm pretty sure there must be an explanation i'm sure too when you spoke about apollo and you said that he was into medicine and he was into music yeah by any chance was he into using music as medicine like vibrations or sound it could be i have to research about that mm. that's an interesting point you brought up so we have to keep researching about these questions because the more and more we get into the ha- rabbit hole the more we uh, get closer to the reality so then there were also descendants of asclepius his sons names were podalerios and macahoon who were physicians also he had a daughter called hygia who was actually attributed as a serpent who symbolized wisdom and perpetual renewal generally during those times these professional physicians in greece existed only in large towns and cities and they were paid a retainer fee by their municipalities to serve as resident practitioners but they also worked part time expanding their skills in other professions like farming or metal smithing etc how many hours did they work <laughs> <laughs> i don't know now that's the question i don't know because even after practicing their own profession they are also honing and expanding their skills into other areas which is pretty commendable yeah i wonder so these healers either studies as apprentices or passed on uh, they got this passed on knowledge from generation to generation or uh, many of them were even self studied the fascinating part of this type of medicine is that it took food as medicine approach and bringing a change in the entire lifestyle of the person thus leaving surgeries as the last resort so they used to start with nutrition as the basis exactly oh wow yeah and in today's time doctors don't know nutrition that's that's sad right to consider yeah that's sad now I want to speak about hypocrites but before hypocrites there was Alcmeon of Croton who lived in the later 5th century BCE who was also regarded as the father of physiology embryology psychology medicine itself as well as the creator of psychiatry and the founder of gynecology 
something interesting to know that is that he had the world view regarding now this is very important okay regarding disease being a part of nature and being subjected to the same natural laws that ruled the rest of the cosmos he regarded health being in homeostasis which is the equilibrium of bodily forces and if any force is imbalanced either being excess or deficient disease will ensue okay so technically we are connected to the cosmos yes so basically he believed that we are a part of nature yeah. and all the all that's happening in the nature will also happen inside our body as well as the deficiencies and the excesses that we face when we are diseased with certain kind of problems yeah it totally makes sense the kind of environment we live in dictates our own health if someone lives in a environment which is toxic or let's say someone living on a farm where there are a lot of pesticides being sprayed around so these kind of people have shown to have higher instances of cancer like higher possibility to get cancers and other diseases so yeah that's completely true and epigenetics that that's what we speak about even in modern if not conventional at least the alternate medicine like functional medicine we talk about all of this epigenetics and the connection of the environment to the person so where has it come from from 5th century bce from alkmeon so wow. we have to say thanks to him for that right <laughs> i couldn't have imagined it was since antiquity yeah it's That's... been it's been followed since then they already had the idea in short medicine has come from the greeks yes but also there are other cultural systems and um, no actually uh, it came from the egyptians because after the egyptians it was the greeks yes actually we should talk about in one of the future episode what kind of medicine or health care system did the egyptians follow that will be amazing Perfect. i hope this kind of information exists yeah even i hope to curiosity yeah. now we should actually delve into hippocrates the legendary who is also known as the father of medicine and many thought that he was a direct descendant of asclepius making him half god and half mortal half god and half mortal pretty interesting he um as well a member of the asclepian priesthood wrote one thing we do know about hippocrates is that he spent his life studying patience i would like to stress the word patience for this as it was the first time in history that a physician studied not diseases but patients so that means uh, the person's past experiences uh, their mental state their dietary habits their lifestyle habits their sleep patterns exactly what we are looking in functional medicine and even of course herbalism herbalism as the intake yeah. that's the reason why intake is very very important and conventional medicine of course i we can't blame the doctors because they don't have much time if they sit with every patient for 2 hours then yeah that's going to be a problem yeah actually then god save doctors in that way and the population is too huge uh, to be served by a few doctors yeah. yeah and of course the one thing is preventing illnesses and in a state of dis ease because you're not at ease surely yeah I totally agree with you. So Hippocrates carried cutting-edge knowledge of the body, medicine, 
and understanding of disease processes. For example, the concept of rational medicine, the role and energies of the elements in the body and the world that surrounds us, the concept of abstaining from doing harm and treatment by opposites, the idea of nature as the ultimate healer and classification of illness and diseases, be it acute and chronic, epidemic and pandemic. That is something we herbalists strive to bring into a practice till date. So basically, he has covered everything that you can imagine. So Hippocrates developed a system of humoral theory, which consists of elements such as blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile. I will be discussing these in later podcasts, but for now, just for reference, balance of these humors are a sign of sickness or health. And this is one of the systems we do use in herbalism. The tools he used for balancing the imbalances were consumption of particular foods and drinks, lifestyle changes, bloodletting, use of emetics, cathartic, diuretic, laxative herbs and enemas, basically removal of toxins through elimination, more like detoxification as one might say today. Yeah, and I think uh, herbalists do a better job when it comes to detoxification, especially I think Ayurveda is is heavy on detoxification. Highly regarded. But in functional medicine, all we do is just reduce chelators and uh, support the internal functionings of the body like glutathione support because it's also inside. So technically what we're doing is we are working more in supporting the internal systems of the body to prepare for detoxification at the cellular level at the cellular level and what where herbalism steps in is that it helps to helps in that elimination process the like stage four detoxification so according to this tradition it was preferable to address imbalances first through food and sleep then with drugs if there was no relief and finally sort out drastic measures such as cautery or surgery no, this is perfect. This is how it should actually be in yeah. today's time. Yeah. But it's the opposite. People first go for surgeries and drugs. And then they finally, when things don't work for them, then they come on to alternative. Actually, it's all messed up. This should be the. This should also be a part of mainstream medicine. Yeah, so at the end, what are we propagating over here is the fact that prevention is much better than a cure. Exactly. And also the importance of lifestyle changes and nutrition, dietary changes and sleep, all of this. I I feel so aligned with these great leaders who've carved a path for herbalists till date. Yeah, totally. Then we also have Aristotle of Stagoras, the Greek philosopher and scientist who lived in the 4th century BCE and son to a Macedonian court physician. Aristotle was sent to the academy at Athens at the age of 17. He was one of the important thinkers in the Western history, as he influenced the basic structural formation of Christian and Islamic intellectual traditions and influencing nearly every intellectual revolution of Western thought. Aristotle was also friends with his colleague, as they were students of Plato, known as Theophrastus, who also became the first botanist in Europe. And his Historia Plantarum 
or inquiry into plants was written around 300 BCE. So you all in herbalism have this encyclopedia or this database of what what do you call that? Phrastus, yeah, Historia Plantarum. That's Materia Medica. Ah, exactly what I was referring to. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Materia Medica is... Is the same thing, yes. And they still use it. I mean, I have seen her doing all that and referring to these Materia Medicas and creating her own. Yeah. That is amazing. You're doing what they did in ancient Greece. Yeah, and adding our own flavor into all this, right? Yeah. Our own experiences. And he also created the doctrine of taste and smell with the humoral system and energetics. Now, upon Plato's death, Aristotle settled on the island of Lesbos along with his buddy Theophrastus, making observations on the flora and fauna on which he based his early biological treatise. In 343 BCE, he was invited to return to Macedonia as a tutor to Alexander, who would later go on to conquer Egypt and establish many institutions there, including the Great Library at Alexandria. Additionally, Aristotle founded his own school at the Lyceum in Athens. It is his contributions to the studies of biology, zoology, botany and the philosophies of science and metaphysics that perhaps have the most bearing on Western herbalism. And the best part that he argued about, that I feel is the best part, is that the soul and the body, they are not separate, but they are intimately bounded. Who said this? Aristotle. And he was a student of? Plato. Exactly. Plato was a student of Socrates. And Aristotle was the student of Plato. That means it all came from Socrates. And Socrates was a Greek. Yes, he was a Greek. In fact, I have some things to add about uh, right over here, about Socrates. Since I was any which way going to speak about it in the next episode, but why not since you're already mentioning it, that I also uh, add in a few things. So it was around the time of uh, 460 and 399 BC, or BCE, as they like to call it, there was Democritus. And he was the guy who expanded on the atomic theory. And he was a student of Leucippus, who came up with the atomic theory. So Democritus came up with materialism. Like, what you see is what you get. And there's nothing except empty space. On the other hand, there was Socrates. And he was the founding figure of the Western philosophy. And he didn't provide knowledge. Rather, he seeked for knowledge. He did that by having a questioning mind, which he also encouraged his students. Mm, That's how Plato came into being and through Plato's teaching, that's how Aristotle was so well-versed with his. Exactly. And actually Aristotle was declared the wisest in Athens by the Oracle of Delphi. Wow. Okay, you filled in the gap for me over here, I guess. Yeah. With Aristotle, because I totally agree with him that the soul and the body are not separate. Yes, exactly. However, Socrates and uh, whatever he taught was rejected, especially since he was a non-conformist and he didn't accept the religion okay. in Greece on Athens back then. So he was kind of disliked even by the politicians. He was the one who introduced the concept of invisible energy, which he used to call as form. Ah. He was the one. And he said that form is what gives shape to matter. 
that's what exactly what aristotle propagated and form or energy so this energy is indestructible and was present even before life and will continue to exist even afterwards that means that's the soul that's a spirit yeah that's a spirit yeah yeah exactly but you know in science they would say ah no we wouldn't want to call this a spirit or a soul so yeah we just use form okay i don't do barge now please continue so his argument was that just like a piece of wax is indistinguishable to the form that's given to it the soul is also the very substance that gives form to the body aristotle said that exactly and reading aristotle's ideas such as mentioned in his early writings he classified parts of animals and plants as material substances as were the four elements thus also believe the rational soul governing human life was actually heat and resided in the heart possibly utilizing blood vessels to carry information to and from the periphery hmm he even theorized the heart as being composed of sinews that connected to the parts of body regulating its movement like a puppet master manipulating a marionette and at the lyceum aristotle and his students and collaborators dissected animals in lyceum but because the empirical data was based on animals and not human body they were not regarded well all right so also in alexandria there were two scholars who conducted investigations of human body structure herophilus who examined the placement and structure of many organs such as brain eyes liver vascular and reproductive system extending the work of his teacher praxagoras herophilus is also credited with the discovery of the nervous system also drew distinctions between veins and arteries and evolved a fantastic but systematic classification of the type of pulse employing indications of size strength rate and rhythm thus furthered the study of pulse as a diagnostic tool oh, so the pulse diagnosis comes from comes from there or egypt we don't know. or egypt and even as i'm studying autonomic response testing mm-hmm. we we test using the nervous system right yes. like kinesiology yeah yeah and uh, the nervous system is the first to get affected and when the nervous system gets affected of course the activity of the heart will also get affected the heart rate yeah because they are so intimately related exactly you can't separate any of that whereas in conventional medicine everything is looked at separately yeah that's the sadness and the reality of conventional medicine yeah then we also have Erasmus Stratus wow if you can speak that five times in one go Erasmus Stratus Erasmus Stratus Erasmus Stratus Erasmus Stratus you cannot it's difficult it's a tongue twister so Erasmus Stratus also challenged many of the assumptions of hypocrites particularly those of the humors why he didn't completely abandon humoral theory but his focus was more on the body and its functions 
in the mechanical term. But thankfully, he and his colleagues never abandoned the idea. And I love that fact because you have to be respectful and inclusive that medicine not just comprises of institutionalized medical system, but also alternatives such as acupuncture, chiropractor, herbalism, nutrition, naturopathy, etc. Actually, this guy, uh, since you're, you're speaking about... Erasistratus. So he definitely, he followed the beliefs of Democritus because Democritus was the one who said, whatever you see is whatever that exists. Yeah. And he was the one who, who approached everything in a more mechanical way. Okay. Which again was quoted by Isaac Newton. But we are not getting there. I think we are still here in the past. Yeah. In ancient Greece. At all times, there were two beliefs floating in the society. Mm-hmm. One which was by Socrates and the other one which was by Democritus. Yeah. And constantly there was this conflicting beliefs. But the one good thing is that these guys had an open mind. They, yeah, even though they never agreed to the idea or to the philosophy of Aristotle or um, Hippocrates, but they were open and respectful that mm. it exists in correlation with their own ideas. Yeah, that is perfect because it's not like either one was wrong, but either one was incomplete. And they all they had to do is just combine yes. b- both the concepts. Because yes, in a way, everything is working in a very systematic, orderly manner inside the body and outside the body, which is the universe. Yes. And at the same time, there's also the metaphysical part. Yes. And you just need to combine the both in order to get the complete answer of wellness. Completely, yeah. The, the equation of wellness. Yeah. And today we only look at one part, which is a conventional medicine. And we fail to look at other opportunities to find your health, as I mentioned, such as acupuncture, chiropractor, herbalism. Yeah. So nothing is wrong. Nothing is bad. It's just that everything needs to come together. Exactly. Exactly. So perfect. And since antiquity time, and again, this has been believed by the above-mentioned scholars who take a whole-body system approach and aiming to treat the patient and not the disease. Now we come to 40 CE to 90 CE, which was the era of Pedanius Dioscorides, an excellent physician who was born within the Roman Empire that today it's known as today it's Turkey. Because he was a learned physician for the Roman army to the military services across the Mediterranean region and southern Europe, he was given an opportunity to practice medicine, study disease and identify and collect plants and other medicines throughout his career. He also wrote five volume masterwork, De Materia Medica nearly 2000 years ago so that's what you refer to yeah we are referring to all of these ancient texts so basically you're practicing ancient medicine exactly yeah actually herbalism is ancient medicine it has been derived from all these scholars yeah and still we are attributed as some uh, hippies who are following some quackery pseudoscience medicine and as you all can clearly realize by now that this is not quackery and this has a very solid foundation in our history 
so solid that we are actually speaking about it right now. Exactly. So let's continue. Yeah. Dioscorides uh, text exerted not just ongoing influence on the Western world, but also Islamic and Indian medical practices, which throned Dioscorides as the authority on medical botany and the preparation and use of plant medicines with clear descriptions about native habitats of these plant medicines, their life cycle, and how to identify them so that the readers could ascertain medicines were authentic and correctly identified. After garnering success for his De Materia Medica and being a physician and botanist in this field, he equipped himself of how to practically apply plant medicines in a variety of illnesses, diseases and imbalances rather than the philosophical discourses that were employed by physicians before him. The mm. Materia Medica included helpful instructions on collecting and processing medicines as well as insights into the practical use of herbs such as marshmallow, aloe vera, myr, gentian, lavender, etc. as also culinary spices such as rosemary, cinnamon, fennel, cardamom, as well cosmetics and toiletries, amulets, magical substances, aromatic oils, gums, resins, fruit, milk, honey, cereals, pot herbs, narcotics, opiates and poisons. Mm-hmm. Next we have is Galen of Pergamum from 129 to 216 CE, who was a son of a wealthy architect. Being a physician, he was well-educated in philosophy and literature. He also studied Hippocratic medicine for four years when he was in Alexandria. Galen took the best from all angles. Though he did not agree with Herophilus and Erasistratus' work, that our body is a robot. Neither did he give in to the religious beliefs of miracle curing diseases. But I would like to still say that uh, he was a very pragmatic and well-versed personality who was also critical about his approach but greatly spiritual. He encompassed everything with what resonated with him. He was a prolific writer who argued that doctors must study philosophy as a prerequisite to medical study and practice. Philosophy is one of the foundations of biology and medicine. He also advanced his diagnostic techniques including palpation, pulse taking, urinalysis and investigated stress-related illnesses that is so ubiquitous today. So Galen was an ardent follower of Hippocrates. He was of the view that the body consists of temperament, which demonstrate, demonstrates itself in the form of warm, cold, dry and moist. But if one of them was in excess, there was an imbalance recorded. While diagnosing, he took into account his patient's occupation, localities, seasons and natural constitution that can impact humors of the particular individual. But he stated that through proper diet, many afflictions could be avoided. So that's why food as medicine approach is always taken into account. And we also help the person first to deal with any kind of gut issue 
the person is having nutrition and diet is one of the primary pillars when it comes to determination of illness or wellness exactly he also quoted that among these the worm is the most active and those animals which are by nature warmest have abundance of blood whilst those that are colder are entirely lacking in blood and consequently in winter lie idle and motionless lurking in holes like corpses it's all to do with circulation and that's also exactly what we see in hypothyroidism yeah, the cold extremities cold depression as you might call in herbalism of course but the cir- issue of circulation exactly and then that's what creates damp stagnation which can further lead to problems like cancer eventually not directly of course yeah i'm 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 saying to our listeners yeah for our listeners yeah in fact a good part of galen's work was actually centered around the nature of blood the circulatory system and the function of the heart but his prominent contribution was in the study and diagnosis related to spine and nervous system as he established that the nerves originated in and radiated from the brain and the spinal marrow where they were divided respectively in two types those that caused sensation and those that caused motion hmm galen proposed that the four qualities were apparent and observable in all pathologies of the body for example heat is seen as red swollen tender painful hot tissues as an in inflammation yes caused by an overabundance of blood or the blood's accelerated or excessive function it may also be reflected as a rapid and superficial pulse or elongated constricted red tongue then cold pathologies are the diminished circulation or depressed function that result in a cool flaccid pale darkish inactive insensate tissues in these cases the pulse may be slow and deep and the tongue may display signs of stagnation or paleness caused by deficient circulation that's what you look at exactly these are the tissue states that i'm talking about and in functional medicine we'd simply say sympathetic or parasympathetic dominant state okay like the person is stuck in one state then that again is a, is a disease promoting state so so interrelated the third one is dampness now dampness appears as two types of pathology that is um and the first one being saggy inelastic tissues open pores and a discharge of fluids which is also the damp relaxation tissue state and the other is reflected by stagnancy with soggy flabby damp tissues and thick fluids and discharges so that's damp stagnation stage the four tissue states that i'm talking about that form the basis of western herbalism herbalism exactly and damp conditions may be reflected by an obscure pulse and coated tongue now when the tissues are healthy the quality of dryness supports effective and self limiting bodily functions but in excess the same quality causes tissues to become dry withered weak or brittle if we take liver for example yeah if liver function is impacted negatively yeah then we don't have enough bile secretion yeah fats are not getting broken down or processed yeah and we have dry skin yes and all of those things yeah 
it's technically okay. atrophy of the liver yeah it's just a different way of saying it it's actually the same thing yeah galen proposed that the four qualities or humors were apparent and observable in all pathologies of the body but as medical science developed over subsequent generations humoralism was increasingly losing its validity in terms of explaining and describing pathology whether physical or psychological therefore today herbalists preserve galen's ideas as a testimony that empiricism works every time when we use these systems as a basic framework now his extraordinary legacy left western herbalist with thorough classification and description of the degrees by which the qualities in the body in medicine and in pathologies might be assessed galen also provided a key by which therapeutics could be determined on the basis of two things the first one being disease that is contrary to nature and the second one is that we strengthen the nature so that it preserves the nature with something that has a relationship to nature subsequently we had paracelsus paracelsus maintained that both the cosmos and the human being as a microcosm were composed of a soul or mortal spirit and the divinely created material composed of salt sulfur and mercury in all matter as produced in the four elemental wombs that is air earth fire and water he also posited the existence of a pure and immortal predestined element or quintessence that give rise to the form and qualities of objects and beings which is our innate constitution so we have two types of constitution one is innate and one is acquired so we use innate constitution and acquired constitution which is prakriti and vikriti in ayurveda mm. to determine the constitution of the person so even he had the same ideology and yes. belief now because of his use of inorganic and potentially dangerous substances such as arsenic laudanum mercury and lead as medicines there was a lot of retaliation by his oppositions and referenced his cures as toxic addictive or otherwise damaging to health and this in the modern times became the basis of allopathic medicine so i think yeah there were people always on the opposite sides having different world views and believing in different concepts ever since ancient greece where you started from we are having two different parties at all times yeah now we come into the 1600s nicolas culpepper who was a religious man born into the family of clergy in 1616 he briefly after studying at the university of cambridge soon fell into love with a young woman and they planned to marry tragically his betrothed died after being struck by lightning and his family's reaction was not of that of consolation but rather disownership forcing culpepper to abandon his university studies and sending him into an emotional tailspin this poor chap departed for london with very little money where he apprenticed with an herbal apothecary and devoted every spare 
minute to the study of physics and astrology, soon to become a freelance astrologer and herbalist, eventually building a practice in Spitalfields, England. Culpepper was a proponent of putting medicine and medical care into the hands of common people and did so by publishing in the everyday English of the common person as well as providing advice and care free, free of charge for the poor. Culpepper revered Galen and combined his teachings of physics and theory of humoralism and temperament as well as the cosmological and astrological contributions of Paracelsus and other predecessors into his work. Taking the route of using gentle medicines to dispel humours whenever possible, rather than any heroic purging techniques or the harsh medicines used by Paracelsus. Culpepper grounded his practice in understanding the universe as well believing in the notion that microcosm and macrocosm worked in harmony and microcosm is a part of macrocosm. And his volumes are enriched with therapeutic guidelines by which readers might understand the relationship between the planets, the astrological science, the human body and its afflictions and herbs which in view was critical as studying Physics without astrology is like a lamp without oil. Many of, this, many of the concepts and terms originated in Greek philosophical and medical thought continue to impact our ideas and practices as herbalists, including the way that we assess clients' health and symptoms, the suggestions we make regarding diet and sleep, and our choices of herbs and formulation strategy. Many herbalists turn to explanations of tissue states and related energetics to support their work as practitioners. Still, others might follow the movement of planets and stars to guide their planting, harvesting and medicine making. All of these are rooted in key ideas of humoralism, which was founded by Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Now, when Christopher Columbus inadvertently discovered America, it meant new world for Europeans, but a catastrophe for the Native Americans. He also discovered the highly variable and diverse offerings of capsicum anum, the source species of bell peppers, pimenton, paprika, chili and cayenne. So that's where it came from. Yes. In the late 1700, Samuel Thompson a self-taught herbalist who extolled the idea of Native American plants for common use and created a system on the basis of his experience which is empiricism. He was a staunch believer that common man needed nature to cure before pounding oneself with heavy metals such as mercury to cure. His system was based around a philosophy that disease was a symptom of the body's vital force trying to rid itself of toxic substances. His own story encouraged him to follow the path he eventually pursued as his mother was treated with herbs while she was pregnant by a midwife. And not just that, his own wife was also treated the same way with her postpartum recovery. Physiomedicalism was formed around 1835 by Alva Curtis one of Samuel Thompson's 
assistance took Thompson's philosophical basis and expanded it by adding basic medical sciences and energetics diagnostics. Physiomedicalists made use of tinctures, but not just that, they also emphasized on food-like preparations, water extracts and wine extracts. Then came eclectic medicine that was founded in 1827 by Wooster Beach, who believed Thompson's system would be more effective if practitioners had medical training. But Thompson hated this idea, so they separated and finally Beach founded Reformed Botanical Medical College, where he taught and practiced botanical medicine, which later became eclectic medicine. Around the same time, eclectic becoming established, the first pharmacy school was opened in America and that created a separation between the doctor and the remedy where previously doctors were making and administering their own medicine but later due to the introduction of pharm pharmacy, they were dependent on ready-made pills, powders and alcoholic extracts. But the 1850s eclectic medicine was in sharp decline and a big cause of this was the use of ineffective medicine either made from poor quality plant or prepared improperly. When the preparation of medications was outsourced, the quality declined. Yes. But then John Scudder came along in 1860, a well-spoken charismatic person who was willing to take on a reviving defunct publication started editing Eclectic Medical Journal. He was the one to encourage eclectics to make their own medicine rather than relying on pharmacies with their questionable tinctures. He widely recommended to use fresh plant tinctures and percolations from local plants. He also released a book called Specific Medication and Specific Medicine in which he detailed his philosophy of using small doses of high-quality tinctures to match a patient's ever-changing symptom picture. So mid to late 1800s, the medication was still tinctures and plant extracts and exactly. not drugs. It was plants and heavy metals, unfortunately. The eclectic's contribution to pharmacy, medicine and materia medica after 1850 profoundly influenced the evolution of phytomedicine in Germany in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which in turn gives us the foundation for modern knowledge and use of American medicinal plants, including popular ones such as black cohosh, echnesia and saw palmetto. Now let's talk about the father of the American Materia Medica, John Uri Lloyd, who was an apprentice in pharmacy but went on to holding a manufacturing unit for medicines primarily used by eclectic physicians where they manufactured 379 specific medicines primarily derived from American medicinal plants. He was a teacher, philanthropist, inventor, civic leader and a prolific author. He authored more than 5,000 periodical articles, 6 scientific treatises, 8 scientific texts, 60 short stories and 8 novels. That's a lot. Yes. 
John Uri Lloyd and his brothers also created the Lloyd Library and Museum in Cincinnati with nearly a quarter million volumes. The Lloyd Library is to this day the world's most important medicinal plant library. The histories, viewpoints and healing strategies of Thomsonians, physiomedicalists and eclectic physicians are the common staples of the herbal educational experience today. So let's move on to Native Americans since we've moved to America. Native Americans had their own thing going on. For thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans, Africans and others. Generally, Native American ideas of health and wellness was and is grounded in specific concepts including the sacredness of the universe and all its inhabitants, the interrelatedness of all beings, humans' responsibilities as caretakers of the earth and balance as an indicator of wellness and good health. The fundamental understandings of traditional Native American cultures is that all things are connected and that nothing in creation exists in isolation including the synergy found among the countless constituents in a single herb. So it also resonates with the idea of body as an integrated whole, in which the function of the organs and systems directly and indirectly impact one another. Everything is so interconnected that we cannot separate one thing from the other. And that's what our modern society is all about. Segregation, division and uh, quarantine but i think we shouldn't view health in a very linear manner as organs and tissues suffering elsewhere create a systemic effect in other parts of the body too so we need to reach to the root cause and not be dogmatic about this for that concept true and from the cherokee point of view as in other native cultures and traditional herbal practices. Illness affects not only the physical body, but a person's spirit and mentality as well. And in that, we have specific plants like Solomon seal, Joe pie weed, skullcap, American ginseng, etc. Preparation methods used by them were infusions or decoctions or chewing of roots, inhalation of smoke or steam and the use of formulas in healing within the Cherokee practice where the medicine is administered by the healer itself. And they also view plants having an innately spiritual nature as an integral part of creation and humans and plants have the ability to communicate using spiritual means. Actually, the plants are the real healers and we are just the transmitting body. So between 1450 and 1850, at least 10 million Africans were also taken into slavery in the Western Hemisphere. But they also brought along with them their skills, including herbal knowledge, as well as their own worldviews regarding plants and healing, including mind-body connection, spirituality, emotional aspects that in many ways resonated with those of the Native Americans whom they encountered upon arrival. 
African Americans generally preferred to be treated by one another rather than by the doctors employed by their owners in the case of serious illness. Considering their more gentle and tonic remedies as superior to more heroic techniques such as bleeding, purging, and blistering. They also generally preferred the use of one or two herbs at a time as teas or poultices rather than more complex formulations that we found in Ayurveda and, and in traditional Chinese medicine. Like Europeans, Upon arrival, Africans had to adapt to the plants available to them in a new land through interactions with plants and people. And so many aspects of their herbal knowledge came through contact with both whites and Native Americans. However, they were prohibited by law from practicing medicine in most places. The threat of poisoning was a real one in the public mind and this fear prompted the enactment of rigid laws designed to restrict slaves having access to medicines and herbs. Most African Americans learned to master herbal practices through apprenticeship as herbal knowledge was circulated secretly in slave society and was passed down privately from generation to generation. However, on occasion, they were trained as assistants to the slave-holding physicians, gaining valuable medical and herbal knowledge and even professional renown. Such was the case with Dr. James Durham, one of the first African-American doctors to practice medicine in the 18th century in New Orleans. Both owned and trained by various physicians, he was emancipated as a young man and went on to have a successful career in medicine, employing traditional African-American medicine practices alongside the conventional medicine practices of the day. Interesting, right? Super interesting. Yeah. Finally, we see some integration over here and that too from, a, from an African-American at this point of time. Then let's move on to James Still. He was a man of his conviction, I feel. Because even though he was born to emancipated, poverty-stricken parents who settled in deep woods, he happily supported his family with mundane activities like chopping woods, gathering berries and other laborious work with a burning desire to become a doctor one day as he visited a doctor when he was three years old. And on top of that, he commented his lack of education could not even destroy that desire that he had in himself. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. Now, being in such proximity to nature, he started to know about plants as medicine because of his friendship with the Native Americans. And when he was 18, his father had him apprentice under a local doctor for a period of three years. But in return, he was allowed to attend school for three months each year. His dreams of becoming a doctor constantly haunted him. But then at the age of 21, he got married and bore a child. But within a matter of time, he lost his wife and child to tuberculosis. 
and that raged a fire in him to learn everything about medicine that he could. So he urged a man to sell his distilling equipment, also convincing him to share his process of distilling herbs and selling them. Soon, still, he was distilling peppermint, sassafras and other herbs and started selling his products to shops. Eventually, he reached Philadelphia, where he sold his products to a druggist and also could buy some books on medical botany and medicine making. Still completely armed himself with the knowledge and started helping family and neighbors with their diseases successfully. He never thought that he was actually practicing medicine. Rather, he was just providing help to the diseased. Quickly, but surely, he became a wealthy man as he was running a world-class manufacturing unit for his botanical formulations and simultaneously had a busy practice to look after. Eventually, when he approached his end of life, he died being satisfied and gratified, plus passed on all his wealth of knowledge about herbal medicine to his sons. So in this case, I really feel that he had this strong desire to be a doctor, but he never thought that he is in reality helping people around in his community with his own um, herbal knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, frankly, to the, our listeners, you don't have to be a doctor to improve your health. Now let's move on to Appalachian folk medicine, which was a mix of medicine traditions derived from European, Native American and African traditions. For example, Greek philosophy of humoral system, that is energetics, materia medica, that was by Native Americans, and teachings of Africans through the world of spirituality. Appalachian herbalism was heavily focused on body fluid, that is blood, and its movement, like the viscosity, whether it's thick blood or thin, or high or low, etc also including the significance of astrology in their practices, like determining the best days for harvesting, planting and cutting hair, etc. Significance was even attached to oral transmission of knowledge, either from healer to healer or teacher to student or through generations within the family. Such was the case with Tommy Bass, herbalist from Alabama. Kudos to this guy. And why was he so famous down south? Because he kept the regional herbalism alive when there was a decline of herbalism because of mainstream modern medicine. But this man was so committed to his craft and with his adherence, his main goal was to give ease to the suffering. Bass's work was deeply inspired by eclectic, Thompsonian, and physiomedicalist. I think because of his devotion towards his work and becoming such an excellent wild crafter and medicine maker that he gained large clientele while opening up a health food store and keeping the tradition alive by oral transmission and teaching the apprentices the wisdom he acquired over a period of time. 
mean oral transmission of knowledge yes in the colonial time in america university trained physicians were touted as rationalist and they employed use of drastic purgatives emetics bloodletting stimulants opiates and drugs based on highly toxic heavy metals including preparations of lead mercury and antimony among others therefore the teachings and philosophies of benjamin rush and his professor william cullen were the structural basis for allopathic medicine but because of itinerant holistic practitioners who used to travel from town to town offering their services were mostly european descendants but had the herbal knowledge from the native americans but all of this soon caught the attention of these modern physicians in need of answers for these incurable diseases such as syphilis so something like lobelia syphilitica came into existence and that account was published by peter cam in swedish medical journal who had already written three volumes regarding travels in america on plant taxonomy second most group who grew out of democracy were the thomsonians because according to samuel thompson he believed that each person should have the freedom to choose the system of medicine they felt was best for them all this retaliation was justified during a time when physicians friend was dangerously high amounts of mineral drugs literally during thomsonian's time he claimed to have 3 million following as people were either adherents to his principles or relied on his system for medical care his books created a ripple effect in the market popularizing the use of herbs freedom of medical choice and self treatment in the back to lung movement of the late 1960s and early 1970s even homeopathy a name coined by samuel hanman the father of homeopathy was a german he also faced a lot of scrutiny and skepticism in america as they faced stiff competition with orthodox allopathic physicians the homeopaths arrived in america by 1825 so they have two principles first one being that like cures like and not as a collection of disease labels and it's your own body's healing powers that throw out the disease modern science has discounted this kind of medicine as placebo due to the infinitesimal doses used in this medicine by 1845 nathan smith davis of binghamton new york he became a moving force behind the creation of american medical association and as the animosity grew between the orthodox physicians homeopathic physicians and the botanic physicians there was a desire to organize control license legislation and medical education ama increased their quality of medical education and by 19th century 
major advances took place in surgery, creating antiseptic environment in the surgical room, and the emergence of vaccination. At the same time, pharmacy was shifting from whole plant extracts to single isolated purified compounds. For example, morphine first isolated from opium by 1803, leading to a more specific usage and dosing. Along with the development of hollow syringe in the 1850s, this allowed for the use of morphine on battlefield during the American Civil War, creating tens of thousands of morphine addicts in the post-war period. Originally, willowbark extract was used to reduce fever, but in 20th century, that advanced to favor a single constituent over the whole herb extract, and therefore we got salicin and salicylic acid from meadowsweet herb and synthesize it into aspirin, which was done by Herman Kolb. Of course, they can't earn money out of a plant, but they can patent and earn money out of a isolated compound of the plant. So true. Now, when Flexner report findings was published in 1910 by Abraham Flexner on behalf of Carnegie Endowment and Nathan Colwell, they had an adverse effect on all but the medical institutions who passed AMA's strict guidelines. So low rankings were given to eclectics, physiomedicalists and homeopaths by 1940s. The disappearance of alternate medicine remained, but only until 1970s when people finally started realizing they need to take control of their own bodies and showed concern over the side effects of these drugs when they were taken long time. So currently, we have acupuncturists, naturopaths, chiropractors who are under the umbrella of complementary alternative medicine, which is also known as CAM. Now, why I follow this system? Firstly, because I gave you all such an insight about the history and where it all started from. And it's the oldest system of healing on this planet. And also it offers a whole lot of wisdom, which has hence been passed down from generations to generations. And our existence has been around nature. So we shouldn't lose touch base with them. So I take this torch responsibly forward of herbal medicine through my practice so that I can bring people more closer to the plant world and help and guide them through their healing journey. That is beautifully said. We promise you we'll get you there to your wellness. It'll take time. But surely and definitely the results are going to be positive. Perfect. Perfect. And it all starts with not just listening to the podcast or following us, but by putting it into practice. Yeah. Implementation is what will take you ahead. And belief. Have faith at the same time. Thank you for listening to us. It's been great. So until next time. See you all.